my my background academically is computer science and philosophy, and my my work has been about kind of the the relationship between those two fields. You know, what do we learn about being human by thinking about you know the the quest to create artificial intelligence? Um, what do we learn about human decision making by thinking of human problems in computational terms? Um, and so the the themes that have interested me over the years have been, you know, on the one hand, this species level question of like what defines, you know, human intelligence at a, at a species level, um, and secondly, at an individual level, how do we how do we approach decision making in our own lives, and what are the problems that the world throws at us? Um, and so now I find myself interested at at kind of the group level, the society level, the civic level. Um, in, in a couple different ways. So one of these is um, in the field of journalism, I feel like there, so stepping back for a second, I feel like in, in the sciences there's this really profound movement happening right now towards openness, reproducibility, the sharing of models, the sharing of data, and um, I've been really encouraged by what I've seen over the last few years in terms of uh, the, the norms of, of the sciences are changing. Um, so it used to be that people were very scared to publish their models because that was kind of the secret sauce. That was their um, advantage over, over other research groups. And, you know, for example, uh, in the field of deep learning, uh, there's this group at Berkeley that sort of put their models out on the Internet and said, here they are. Here's, you know, here's the secret sauce. Here's the secret recipe. And um, what happened was that their work became kind of the, the touchstone work that everyone else was using and everyone else was kind of working in reference to. And I think the more profound thing there is that they're recreating the, norm, the, the social norms of the field towards a mode in which if you don't share your models and you don't allow others to reproduce your work, it's considered suspect. Um, that to me is a really encouraging trend. And so where, where I get interested in this is applying that more into a civic space and, and, and driving towards the idea of reproducibility in journalism. So, you know, you see, um, you might see a, a chart in a journalistic piece that says, you know, this is, uh, this is the crime over time or this is the mortgage rate over time or something like that. And if you're lucky, you know, you'll, you'll get some line at the bottom that just says, like, source you know, Energy Information Administration. That might be the most that you get. Um, there is nothing remotely approaching the level of like reproducibility that the, the sciences hold as the ideal. Um, there's no way for a citizen to rebuild that chart and that analysis from first principles. So this is something that really interests me. Um, and uh, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm working with a, a group of collaborators to see what can be done basically at the intersection of uh, computer science and journalism to create ways for people to present their stories and, and their claims in a way that, that can be reproduced. Um, so this is something that I think about all the time as a citizen. You know, I'm always reading stories and trying to scratch through this, the headline to, like, the data source that's driving the headline. For example, I'll see a claim that says, you know, uh, 
just here's here's a topical one. You know, San Francisco median rent stabilizes month over month for the first time in X number of years, um, and you know that it makes for a good story because there's some something of short-term interest that's happened um, in some time series, right? But uh, it's very rare that that story will provide me a way to see the historical data um, and look at the time series for myself and, and come to my own conclusions. Um, so, for example, you know, there was a big... Uh, I remember in Obama's most recent State of the Union, he was talking about the unemployment figures, and he said, you know, we've, we've created, uh, I think it was 14 million jobs um, since I came into office. And this was kind of rebutted by factcheck.org that said, well, he's counting from the bottom of the recession, not the beginning of his term in office, and he's only talking about the private sector, the public sector is still net negative. Um, and my, my attitude in, in this case is um, if, if the claims and the charts were being provided in a form that showed the work, uh, we would not need you know, a point-counterpoint in prose. I just think prose is kind of the wrong medium for that. Um, so this is, this is one of the things that I've been working on in, in the civic space. Um, is thinking about how to provide the tools for someone to make these claims in a way that's reproducible, that, that includes the, the actual model building and the assumptions. Uh, I mean, in some ways, I, I think of it as, um, as a problem with a pretty straightforward technical solution, but there's also a cultural solution. So, I mean, uh, I'm... I'm I'm very encouraged, for example, at a technical level by the Jupiter Project. So this is um, this is uh, started out of UC Berkeley, and um, it's a platform. You know, it's a it's a web platform for reproducible data analysis. You know, you can include blocks of prose. You can say, okay, then we did this, and you you just include a block of computer code that's runnable in the browser and generates the figure right there. Um, and so this is something where this has gotten really widely adopted uh, in the data sciences, um, in, um, you know, in, like I said, the, the hard science community. And I'm interested in bringing this to, you know, the, the civic space um, and making a version of this that, that journalists can use um, and that we can use to... Uh, Make something that, that actually has an impact on, on, on citizens. So take this thing that's used by scientists um, and, and carry that over into the public sphere more broadly. I think, you know, journalists in particular can be a prickly bunch in the sense that um, the, the social norms in journalism, you know, when, when a journalist does an interview, they take notes and they'll publish certain quotes from the interview, but they, they have this larger set of notes. And they don't publish the notes. In fact, they often don't share them with their own colleagues. And so part of the question here is, uh, I mean, I, I see this as, as parallel to the problem in the hard sciences. Um, how do you try to create a new, uh, you know, it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma. You know, if, if everyone's uh, trying to hoard their information, then it kind of makes sense for you to do the same. But if everyone's... Uh, sharing their information, then it makes sense for you to do that too. And so, 
I think it's fair to expect that if if a claim cannot be presented in a reproducible form, then we kind of don't trust the claim. Um, and so, you know, if if um, a politician cites a particular figure, I think it's right to say, like, where did you get that number? Where did that come from? Um, they're not; they don't always disclose it. But I think it's appropriate to create a norm around this, where if they don't, uh, then then we treat it with total skepticism. Like, if you're going to uh, use the you know energy administration figures, then you have to actually provide. You know, let's say we imagine you, you actually have to provide some kind of Jupyter notebook in which you say like, okay, here's the code by which I scrape those. Uh, I'm actually building a prototype of this, and uh, and I'm working with uh, some designers and data scientists and uh, a group of people, including some of the people who work in the hard sciences on, on these notebooks, and we're trying to we're trying to make something. Um, so it it remains to be seen um, what the adoption will be. But every time I talk to journalists about this, they immediately recognize the problem and and people seem genuinely enthusiastic. So you know this is this is probably half of what I'm working on right now. And academically, my background is computer science and philosophy. and uh, I have I have thought of each discipline in the terms of the other, and so in you know in philosophy, you know your your training is in assembling and disassembling arguments. You know someone someone lays out a case for X, and you're trained to kind of pick apart that into its component pieces and find the weak link and attack the weak link and so forth. Um, and having that training in parallel with being trained as a computer scientist uh, really instilled in me this fundamental belief that prose is is just the wrong form for a lot of the discussions that we have um, in civics. You know, I when I was in college, I judged a debate tournament, and uh, it was pretty eye-opening for me to think about... Um, you know, li- live rhetorical argument making um, as being this kind of very strange genre that that really doesn't have the properties that you would want uh, for for civic discourse. Uh, so, you know, if someone if someone goes up and makes uh, a ten minute long speech, they make let's say a dozen different arguments for their position. The other person goes up to make a ten minute long counter speech and they just choose the one of those 12 arguments that was the weakest and they spend their entire time hammering away on it, you know, humiliating the other person and you know, if you're not paying attention, you come away with the impression that the second person has won the debate when in fact there were 11 unanswered arguments in favor of, of the first group um, and so it's it's always felt to me for, for at least 10-15 years um, that you know, prose is just the the wrong format. I think you know, televised debate is especially bad. But even prose, even written prose, is, is really complicated. And so, someone who's been very influential in my career is Douglas Hofstadter. Um, so he, you know, writes this book in the seventies, Go to Lesherbach, um, which is this kind of insane genre transcending book about 
number theory and music theory and visual art history, and it ultimately sort of makes this argument about human consciousness. So um, I think of Hofstadter as someone who, especially in that particular book, really uh, just rode totally roughshod over the division between computer science and philosophy. You know, he's saying, like, I'm going to turn to typographical number theory to make an argument about, you know, what makes human consciousness. Um, and so encountering that as a teenager was hugely influential to me. Um, and, you know, at, at the broadest level, my, my thinking in my work life, but just my, my approach to life has been driven by this conviction that there is a really profound relationship that exists between the biggest questions, the biggest philosophical questions, um, and the, the formal rigor that arises out of, you know, thinking about things in mathematical or computer scientific terms. I th yeah, I think of cognitive science as being one of the major uh, estuaries, if you will, of, of computer science and philosophy, and, and that's been one of my major interests since the very beginning. Um, and you mentioned Daniel Dennett. Um, he's someone who has been coming up a lot for me um, in the, the other body of work that I've been doing, which kind of tackles the, the intersection of computer science and civics in a, in a totally different way, which is thinking about um, ethical questions with respect to artificial intelligence. So um, Dennett has this speech from the 1980s uh, called the Moral First Aid Manual. Um, and he talks about uh, there's, there's this major problem in his, in his take uh, within the field of ethics, which is that it assumes kind of unbounded computational power in, in the person making, making a decision about what, what action is the correct good action to take. Um, and you think about this, for example, in the trolley car problem. This, there's this famous thought experiment, you know, there's a trolley going down the track, it can hit one person or five people, you have this lever, or you can maybe throw someone in front of the train or whatever. Um, I was talking, you know, many people have made the point that this is, this is one of these very, uh, very abstract things that kind of lurches into being a practical problem when you start talking about self-driving cars. And so I was having a conversation with Peter Norvig at Google um, about self-driving cars and the trolley car problem, and, you know, he made the point that, yeah, I mean, in, if you're programming a self-driving car, it's a little bit more like, okay, you have a trolley going down the track, on the, on the one side is one person, on the other side is five people, there's this button that you can press that will have it up too late. You only had 50 milliseconds to make the choice. Um, and so it's just a completely, like, when you take computational constraints into account, it's just a completely different problem uh, than it is if you have this kind of uh, pause button on the universe where you can just sit and kind of think about the consequences. We're now just sort of careening into this world where these things uh, become practical problems, you know. So I think... Um, the way that, you know, we studied prime numbers for hundreds of years just for the pleasure in doing so, and, and mathematicians have boasted about how useless prime numbers are. Um, I think Hardy said it was the most profoundly useless branch of mathematics. 
Um, and then all of a sudden in the 20th century, with the advent of cryptography, it becomes extremely important. And now, like, the global economy is, is riding on these enormous prime numbers. Um, I feel like we're basically seeing the same thing happening now uh, with these ethical thought experiments that have just kind of festered in philosophy for, uh, you know, decades or more, now all of a sudden becoming practical problems that we need to figure out some kind of provisional answer to. I'm, I'm really keenly interested in basically the next 10 years from the, from the perspective that, you know, as... As AI moves into these things, not not just self-driving cars, but um, you know, there's a big news uh, story in the last month or two about algorithms for um, parole, deciding who should get parole. Um, we've you know we've trained these machine learning models to predict recidivism and so forth, um, and ProPublica did this big. Uh, investigation and found what appeared to be a bunch of racial bias in the output of this algorithm. Um, and so this is another case where AI, you know, machine in this case machine learning methods uh, are are intersecting with these ethical and civic questions in what I think is uh, ultimately a really promising and, and potentially very productive way, which is you know, as a society, we have these values in kind of maxim form, like equal opportunity, justice, fairness. Um, and in many ways, they're deliberately vague. Um, you know, that, that's what allows you know, things to be kind of a, a living document that, are, that stays relevant, um, is, is this deliberate um, flexibility and ambiguity. But here we are, we're now in this world where we have to say of some machine learning model, you know, is this racially uh, fair? Is this just? Um, and we have to define these terms, you know, computationally or numerically. Uh, I think in the short term, it's really problematic because we just have no idea what we're doing and we, we don't have a way to approach that problem yet. Um, I think in the slightly longer term, and by that I just mean five or ten years, um, I think there's actually a profound opportunity, which is to like come together as a polis and get precise about what what do we mean um, by uh, you know justice or fairness with respect to certain protected classes. Does that mean it's got a, an equal false positive rate? Does that mean it has an equal false negative rate? Um, what what is the trade-off that we're willing to make? Um, what are the constraints that we want to put on this uh, model building process? Um, I think that's a that's a really profound question, and we've kind of haven't needed to address it until now. Um, and so, I think there's there's really going to be a civic conversation in the next few years about how to bring how to make these concepts. Explicit. Okay, so the question of civics. Um, I mean, I, I, I would be hard pressed to give you off the cuff a definition that would maybe be robust enough against against all the nuances. But this question of how should a society be? You know, this is this has been one of the things in philosophy going back to the Greeks at least. Um, that is, in a way, I think less of 
an explicit concern in in subsequent philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Plato in the Republic, of course, is talking about like, what does the ideal society look like, mm-hmm. um, and this is, yeah, this is not an, as much of an explicit, you know, the, the society, the polis, the um, civic unit is less present, I think, in more recent philosophy. And I, for me, it feels like it is now reemerging as one of the critical spheres, um, especially because of the influence of, of AI, um, that we are now, um, we are now needing to define these societal concepts in a very, very explicit way. Um, you know, we, we have a notion of what good driving looks like. Uh, we have driving tests and so forth. Um, but thinking about, uh, a single, you know, driving algorithm that's going to be driving millions of people, you know, for tens of millions of miles every day. Um, if, it, if there's only going to be one s- procedure for doing that, uh, then all of a sudden uh, we have to think a lot more carefully than we do when you know everyone instantiates a slightly different version of, of what being a good driver means. Um, and so I think the question of defining a society's values, norms, uh, I think it's going to be sort of a crisis in the next decade or two, um, but I'm ultimately optimistic about that. I mean, I think at the broadest level, you know, most of, uh, most AI systems operate by, you know, optimizing with respect to some function, you know, some objective function. Um, and we get to decide what that objective function should be. Um, you know, there are, there are these maxims about, you know, he who would trade liberty for safety deserves neither or something like that. Um, and if you look at something like algorithms for doing parole and probation, um, all of a sudden a question like that becomes extremely, you know, is thrown into extremely sharp relief. Where someone, on the one hand, says, you know, here's this model that has an error rate of, you know, X. Uh, here's another algorithm that's more fair, but it has an error rate of Y. So, you know, just statistically, on average, there's going to be uh, more recidivism. Or, you know, we know that on average there's going to be more crime or more mistakes or whatever as a result of of following this procedure. Um, but we also know that it's it's more fair with respect to these protected classes or something like this. Um, we as a society get to decide, you know, how wh- what are the what are the coefficients basically on the on the competing values that we have as a society. I think there are a number of problems that are that are all pretty tightly bound. I mean, concentration of power, concentration of wealth is itself, I think, one of is going to be. Uh, I mean, it already is, but it's going to be one of the major defining problems I think of the next century. Um, 
your comment about opacity, I think, is the other thing that for, stands out for me as being a problem. So, um, you know, friends of mine who work at places like Facebook, for instance, Instagram, uh, talk about uh, machine learning methods in terms that I find kind of disconcerting, which is they say, you know, we we threw a bunch of, of these huge, you know, machine learning models at our newsfeed. They're, they're better than everything that we've come up with on our own, uh, but no one really knows why, and no one really knows, you know, what's going on inside the box. Um, but we can't, we can't turn it off because it makes us too much money. What I find really interesting is that we have built a justice system that is in large part centered on the idea of explaining yourself um, you've taken some action, explain yourself. Mm-hmm. What was the thought process that went into that action, right? You know, you, you think about, um, I mean, I, I don't have a specific case in mind, but imagine someone shoots someone. You know, a police officer pulls a gun in, uh, on a suspect and shoots them, and it turns out they were unarmed or something like this. Their ability to explain the thoughts that they were having will have a huge impact on whether they spend their life in jail or get a two-week suspension or something like this. Um, And in some ways, that strikes me as pretty flawed because, um, as we were saying, you know, a lot of these decisions happen in 50 milliseconds. So the idea that you're going to stand in front of a jury and explain all of the factors that you weighed, I mean, that's bogus. Um, The truth is, you know that all of this stuff was happening in a completely uh, inarticulate level. And your ability to reconstruct an explanation for that or confabulate an explanation for that um, will have a huge determination on what happens to the rest of your life. Um, And so, you know, I'm I'm, I'm totally with the argument that... um, you know, the, the giant uh, neural networks are black boxes, but so are we. Um, that's true. Uh, but I think there's something unsettling about this idea that, you know, if, if you know, a, a classic uh, if-then-else computer program does something, we can go back and, and say, like, okay, here's where things went wrong. This was the problem. Um that you know our, enti- our entire notion of, of legal responsibility and justice depends on the ability to explain uh, why something happened, and so as we start to deploy these systems that basically can't do that, or we we can't peer into them and, and understand why they did something, um, are we going to have to somehow engineer in? Uh, an ability for the system to kind of self-report. But again, it's not always... In many cases, there isn't an answer. It's like, why did you take this action? Well, these edges on this, you know, neural network graph were weighted this, and so this thing happened. That's not necessarily a satisfying explanation. Um, But we have a justice system that's dependent on on motive, on intent, and all these things. So academically, my, my background is I came out of this uh, math and science and engineering magnet high school, and I went to Brown University and studied computer science and philosophy. 
um, and double majored in those. And along the course of my undergraduate trajectory, I decided that <clears throat> what I really wanted to be was a writer. And so I went to graduate school and got an MFA in creative writing. I was probably one of the few people to ever go from the computer science department into an MFA program. Uh, after graduate school, my my career has been in writing nonfiction books. Uh, my first book is called The Most Human Human, and it's about my participation in a Turing test competition, um, which I'm sure many uh, many folks will be familiar with, but the basic idea is uh, you have humans and computer programs claiming to be humans in a chat room, and a panel of judges has five minutes to figure out you know, which, which are the real humans and which are the imposters. Um, so I took part in the main Turing test competition in 2009, and my first book is both a recounting of that experience, but more broadly um, looking at the history of artificial intelligence itself and the history of, you know, within philosophy, how have humans answered one of the longest-standing questions in philosophy, which is, what is it that makes humans unique and distinct and special? For 2,500 years, you know, you go back to Descartes, you go back to Aristotle. Uh, philosophers have answered this question by contrasting ourselves with animals. And so in many ways, I think that computer science and, and, and AI specifically has inverted a 2,500-year-old question, which for me is very thrilling. You know, we now, we now think about what defines and characterizes human intelligence uh, by making a comparison to machines rather than to animals. Mm -hmm. And it's just completely changed the framework by which we think about, you know, the human experience. So, um, so that the book kind of explores that question. Um, and more recently, uh, I published a book, uh, in collaboration with Tom Griffiths, a cognitive scientist at UC Berkeley and a good friend of mine. Um, uh, called Algorithms to Live By, which looks at human decision-making through the lens of computer science. So the basic idea is that, um, you know, there's there's this huge class of problems that we face in everyday life, whether it's deciding, you know, where to go out to eat or what house to live in um, or how to manage, you know, our limited space in our house or our office or how to, how to structure our time. Um, that take on a particular structure as, as a result of our finite information, finite time, finite ability to compute. Um, but we think of these as intrinsically human problems. They're not. They, they're closely parallel um, a set of the canonical problems in computer science. And so this gives us an opportunity uh, to learn something about the problems that we confront in our own lives and, and how to make better decisions in our own lives by thinking about uh, human problems through the perspective of computer science. Yeah, Gigerenzer's work is uh, on, on heuristic decision making is very relevant here. So, you know, one of the things that, one of the fundamental, you know, premises of theoretical computer science is that uh, we can in effect, grade problems by how hard they are. And there are certain classes of problems that are so-called intractable, where there just is no efficient way to get, get the answer reliably. Um, and what computer scientists do when they're up against intractable problems is they have this huge toolkit, um, you know, relaxations, regularizations, randomized algorithms, and so forth. Um, 
And one of the things that emerges is that in many cases, getting an answer that's pretty close most of the time is better than grinding your way through uh, to the exact solution. One of my favorite examples of this um, is in this area called primality testing. So uh, most of, you know, encrypting the web relies on generating these huge prime numbers. So that means that we need good algorithms for determining whether a number is prime. And the algorithm that's used uh, today in practice is called the Miller-Rubin test, which is wrong a fourth of the time. Um, and to me, this is extremely fascinating. So um, I've talked with engineers at OpenSSL and, and people who do work on encryption, and I've said, well, how many Miller-Rubin tests is enough if they're wrong 25% of the time? And the answer is, you know, about 40 and I just love that we've we've had to fix the amount of certainty that we demand in in this application. Uh, and in this case, someone actually, uh, as recently as 2002, I think, discovered a polynomial time algorithm for testing primality. But we still use the one that's wrong a fourth of the time, mm-hmm. and we just do it 40 times. Um, and so I think there's a powerful there's a powerful message there in thinking just at the broadest level about rationality. What does rational thought, rational decision-making look like? I think there's this idea that uh, there's kind of this bias that we have that rational decision-making means always coming up with the right answer or considering all your all the possibilities, all your options, mm-hmm. following like a reliable process, a deterministic process that's going to give you the same answer every time. Um, arriving at an answer that's that's definite, uh, it's both precise and certain, um, and computer science, I think, offers us, uh, in many ways, a better standard than, for example, economics for thinking about rational decision-making when you're up against what is just a genuinely hard problem, which is you don't, you don't have the luxury of computing all, all possibilities, you don't have the luxury of arriving at a, the same solution reliably with total certainty. Um, and so in this case, I think what emerges is a, is a standard of rationality that is, uh, I would say, more useful, more approachable, and more human. One of the things that interests me is in these domains where we can identify, you know, human decision-making uh, falls into a certain category of of problem where we know what the optimal algorithms are for that class of problem. So, for example, there's a class of problems, excuse me, there's a class of problems called explore-exploit problems, where you have a limited amount of time and you have to divide your time between gathering data and using the data that you have to get some kind of reward. The the classic study, um, I think it's from the 1970s, Amos Tversky, uh, had a box with two different lights, and one one of the two lights would go on uh, at any given you know press of a button with some probability. Let's say this one went on forty percent of the time, this one went on sixty percent of the time. But you don't know that ahead of time. Um, you've got a thousand opportunities either to observe which light turns on or to place a bet on which light you think will turn on but not get to observe it and not know the result of your bet until the end of the study. 
Um, and so this is a case where you know you can work out the optimal way to play this game, and it turns out to be something like <clears throat> observe 38 times in a row, and then whichever light turned on more, blindly make a series of 962 bets on that light. Um, and so, okay, we can we can say this is the optimal strategy for this game. Then there's the question of what do people actually do when you give them this task? Do they do anything remotely like that? No. Um, what they do is they observe for a little while, they put a series of, you know, five or ten bets or whatever, then they go back to observing, then they go back to betting, then they go back to observing and so forth. And to me this is really interesting there's always an interesting moment where you discover a dissonance between human behavior and, and the prediction you'd get from the model, mm -hmm. which is either people are just doing it wrong or somehow the model is failing to take something into account. Maybe the people are solving a different problem than the one you're modeling. Um, so in this case, um, someone looked at the data for the study and said, well, you know, if, if the rate at which these lights are turning on is on a random walk, then human behavior is actually pretty close to optimal. It's exactly the type of thing you'd want to do. You'd want to observe for long enough to kind of pin it down, make a series of bets until the point at which it might have drifted away, reobserve, and so forth. Um, and in the literature, this is known as the restless bandit problem, um, the idea of this process that's on kind of a random walk. Um, and what's, what's so fascinating to me is... You know, so people are people are presented with a static bandit, but they're they're solving it as though it's a restless bandit, and so they're they're missing out on some payout that they could have gotten if they'd done the correct thing. Um, and you can ask, well, okay, we we told them very clearly at the start of the study that these probabilities were fixed. So why are they behaving as though they're on a random walk? Well, I think a fair answer to that question is, you know, they're they're subjects in a research study. Why would they believe? what you tell them, you know, the experimenters famously lied to research subjects all the time. And so I think in many ways it's quite reasonable to say even though I've been informed that these lights are on these constant probabilities, I'm going to keep checking because I don't totally believe that. Um, and the, the even more interesting thing to me is that the restless bandit problem still does, is considered an open problem. We do not have good, efficient, uh, optimal strategies for the restless bandit problem. And so in many ways, not only are humans solving a subtler version of the problem than the one we are originally modeling, they're solving a problem where we don't really have good models yet. Um, so that to me, you know, there, there is a, a really fruitful uh, dialogue between, you know, the, the lab data that psychologists and cognitive science scientists are getting um, and the optimal strategies that computer science uh, is discovering. And uh, each, each informs the other, and I, and I think at the broadest level it points toward, in my view, uh, it, it reclaims a little bit of, of rationality for, for humans, that I think it's easy to, to conduct a study like this and say, like, oh, people are dumb, they're doing, they're doing a strange thing, or they're doing... Uh, kind of an uninformed thing. Um, but in many cases, I think this is a very good example where a, a closer look reveals that, in fact, um, people are 